have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him find your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can do it. Okay. Hey, how are you all? <laughs> awesome. Uh, I figured as much. It's a tough time of year. Okay, so give me a color that describes midterms. Gray. Gray. Okay. What was this? A gray. Gray winds. Overcast. Cloudy in our hearts and minds. Um, well, how about give me a color that represents the hope for spring break? Yellow. Okay. Any other colors? So I'm just forcing you to participate. Isn't this fun? Okay. So, um, those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm not a painter, uh, but I am a campus minister, and I work for this thing called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, and we are a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all, and this campus, we mean you all wherever you are and however you are, and maybe that means for you um, right now that you can be thinking about other things, and we're still glad you're really, we're really glad you're here. RAF isn't meant for one kind of person. I say this every week, but I mean it. We want to be a scene, uh, we want to, excuse me, be a campus ministry that welcomes anyone from any scene, any kind of person, whether you're from a particular personal background or a particular social scene on campus, we want you to feel welcome here. This is meant for you. And we also even mean that with Christianity. We hope that you feel welcomed wherever you are with Jesus or Christianity, whether you're convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic or something in between or none of the above. Like, we really mean we're glad you're here. So I'll also say thanks for coming. I also just wanted to welcome a few folks in the back who brought incredible amounts of snack. Um, so thanks to the folks back there. see Jonathan, Nathan, and a few kids in Jan. Um, so thanks for coming. They're from a church called North Cross Church, uh, where actually I go, and it's a great church locally. And they've come just to, to stay up late with us. So afterwards, maybe you can thank them uh, for some snacks and for staying up late. Especially the kids, that's really late. Okay, so um, also if you're new, this is your first time, uh, we're really glad you're here. So we hope that you feel um, welcomed and encouraged. And I just want to especially give that to you for the risk and the time it takes to be here. Okay, so this semester in large group, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's largely, by the way, is what we're doing right here, right now. Uh, we have been looking at these three chapters in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, these are likely the most quoted and the most well-known 
verses in the Bible. Um, and this is likely because Matthews 5, 5 through 7 contain the most famous speech by the most famous person in world history, Jesus, recorded in the most famous book in the world, which is the Bible. This is all relatively likely. And this worldwide world historical fame speaks to the fact that the Sermon on the Mount, I would say, is essential Christian reading. And that just means historically, every time anyone, Christian or not Christian, has come to look and figure out what Christianity is, they go to the Sermon on the Mount. And also, geographically, every cultural take on Christianity goes through the Sermon on the Mount, typically. And here's the thing, though. Every time, whether uh, you call yourself a Christian or not, we all tend to read the Sermon on the Mount the same way. Just a couple more chapters of good advice that I should really just follow. Um, but if Jesus' words to us here and elsewhere in the scripture are just another get these things right or else list, then it's going to be trouble for us because we will try to do it with all of our strength and the results are going to vary depending not on our ability so much as our self-honesty. Okay? Uh, if you think you've got it, you're not very honest. If you think you don't got it or you think that you can't or won't do it, you're probably closer on the honesty scale. So what does that mean? That means that let's look at the Sermon on the Mount a slightly different way than we're used to, uh, which I think is the way that Jesus intended. Uh, it's an invitation. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation that Jesus is saying, hey, this is what it looks like to intentionally live with me in this world. Jesus is asking us to see our lives and see the world afresh with spiritual imagination. And this week, yet again... Uh, we had a little break where we talked about O's last week, but this week, again, we're going to talk about some hard stuff that requires some real heavy-duty spiritual imagination, okay? We're discussing Jesus' most challenging teaching yet, okay? Yes, greater than anger management, <laughs> more tough than lust-busting, <laughs> and deeper than honesty is your best policy. I mean, Jesus is only asking us to be perfect. <laughs> I mean... Only as perfect as God is perfect. Simple. Simple. Yikes. Yikes. Okay, so... But before we officially get into what, he's, what he means here and what we should do about it or what he's done about it, let me take a moment and pray with us. Pray with me and for me, if you would. Father, thanks for this time together. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be with you, to take an hour out and just to, to remember... Uh, why we're on this planet, um, what this life is about, why we're even at Davidson. Um, and that answer might be different shades for different people in this room. And I pray that you would help us, no matter where we are with you, Jesus, that you would help us to, to draw closer to you, to see you afresh. Um, I pray that this would be a refreshing time where we could remember and recalibrate and uh, reconfigure our minds and our hearts to more properly align towards you. I pray that you'd be more believable and more beautiful to our hearts, and really that you would dispel some of the fog that comes from being in the basement of the library too long, um, to having a carol as the only things we can see, um, or maybe just a computer screen. And I pray that you would just be with that, that we wouldn't separate that out, but that we'd be able even now to lift that before you and ask uh, what you'd have us to do with it, um, that good thing that we're doing. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Don't leave us the same. Amen. Okay.
So, um, let's just start with a story, should we? Okay. So, uh, second year teaching, the age, I'm the tender age of 24. Okay. And it's the springtime, and there's a senior student who's in his second, excuse me, his senior spring. Okay. He decides to write an editorial on school pride in the school newspaper, but the content of the article wasn't exactly the point. Using the first letter of select words, he had encrypted a message about the head of the upper school, a guy named Bill, and his message then proceeded to string out a series of gross personal insults, expletives about Bill's character, about his marriage, about his family, and everything else. It was graphic, nothing was too vulgar, nothing was off limits. Okay? Then, as usual, these sort of things happen. At first, it seemed innocent. Uh, the encryption key, the decoder ring, if you will, was passed around from close friends to near friends to frenemies to class tattletales to faculty then to administration, right? And the faculty and the administration's fury was hot and it was heavy, okay? I remember the first few faculty meetings vividly as just a little junior teacher there, okay? Uh, Red-faced shouts for justice, okay? The tears and the red splotched uh, embarrassment of Bill, the upper school head, about all of this, okay? But then something amazing happened a few weeks later. After much deliberating about punishments, messaging for the other students, the future of the senior who cursed out an administrator, there was this faculty meeting where Bill got up and he spoke quietly and he spoke at length. He explained how painful the encrypted message had been to him and his family how knowing someone actually felt this way about him, even if it was a joke, had caused him to spend so many sleepless nights interrogating himself and his work and his character. And in the midst of these bouts of insomnia, he had turned to the Bible, and in particular, he actually turned to the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and even to the passage that we just heard tonight. Based on his reading of Jesus' teachings, Bill concluded that he was called to turn the other cheek and to love this student who clearly hated him. And the whole faculty was breathless as Bill sincerely spoke about forgiveness, and then in light of his personal convictions, his personal meditation, Bill then decided as upper school head to give the offending student as light a possible punishment as he could. He made it as light as he could. Okay. I felt so many mixed emotions after that meeting, I can't even tell you, okay? On the one hand, I felt such admiration for Bill's personal reflections and his convictions of mercy. But on the other hand, I felt such frustration at the injustice of the punishment given. I remember being so fired up, almost to the point of leading a Che Guevara rebellion within the faculty. Uh, with this desire for justice, right? For a punishment that suited the crime, that caused remorse, that sent a message to all the other prep school punks with the turned up blazer collars, like this kid, okay? But at the same time, as I felt that fury and for justice, I also had a smaller, kind of deeper, more internal sympathy for what Bill said and did. Maybe there was this place for mercy in all this, but where? What place? I think this story illustrates two profound things. Okay? First, interpreting the Sermon on the Mount in real life and in real time 
can be extremely difficult. Second, like that moment with Bill and the student's hatred and the school's response, Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, exposes how we actually naturally lean. Typically, we either lean towards justice or we lean towards mercy. We either typically lean towards justice or mercy. I'd invite you to think of a time when someone close to you or you yourself experienced personal insult or injury or even abuse. Okay, I know that's hard to go there. And that could be a remote, very distant point in time, or it could be a fresh and very serious as today time. And uh, here's my guess, though, as you start to go there a little bit, and then you can pull yourself back if you need to. My guess is that you either leaned conservative, doubled down on the consequences, and wanted to give the offender exactly what he or she deserved. Or you leaned liberal, you examined the extenuating circumstances, and you wanted to not give what's deserved. That is mercy. Okay? And so you can lean towards justice or mercy, typically. But it's so interesting, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, Jesus is asking us to value both justice and mercy equally and at the same time. And then further, he's asking something even beyond our natural inclinations, our natural leanings. Jesus is asking us to value, to lean towards a posture that offends conservatism, that offends liberalism, that a way of being that surpasses a concern for legal consequences, that is rule-keeping, or for legal exceptions, that is rule-breaking. Jesus is asking us to value what the Bible calls grace. Giving what's not deserved. And in this case, that grace is loving your enemies. Okay? So putting this all together, okay, because that's a lot. Jesus is asking, he's demonstrated with his life, and he's empowering us in the present tense through his spirit to do something supernatural, something that is not natural. We are to embrace both justice and mercy by not personally retaliating. Okay? And further still, we're actually called to embrace grace by loving the people who choose to harm us. Okay? We all tracking with that? Okay, I'll say it again. We've got to embrace both justice and mercy by not personally retaliating. And at the same time, we're further still called to embrace the grace of loving people who choose to harm us. Okay? And really, verses 38 through 48 divide neatly into what I just repeated. Okay? Verses 38 through 42, your first point, Jesus did and says that justice and mercy look like not taking personal revenge. Okay? This is a posture that requires passive resistance. And the second point is verses 43 through 48. And that's Jesus' did and says grace looks like loving your enemies. And that's a posture that requires active obedience. Okay? And that, by the way, is on your handout. And just those two points, probably in fewer words, which is really nice. Okay? And then we're going to begin, as we usually do at the beginning. I know it's shocking. And we're going to look at verses 38 through 42.1. And we're going to look at Jesus' high regard for both justice and mercy. Okay. So, Jesus addresses justice and mercy just like he addressed the previous hot topics. 
of verses 21 through 37 that we've been looking at the last few weeks. He quotes the popular speakers of the day. You've heard it said is how he begins, right? In the case of verse 38, the popular spiritual talking heads, the popular religious pundits, were simply quoting the Old Testament section of the Bible, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, okay? That is, look, if someone gouges your eye, you have the legal right to gouge his or her eye back, if someone knocks out your tooth, you have the right to knock out his or her tooth right back. And so on for every other bodily injury or personal damages or possessions. Okay? While this may seem a bit unusual and cruel for us, in the ancient Near East, this was like this amazing safeguard. Because what this did was, it's a way the ancient Eastern people, the governments in particular, said the punishment must fit the crime. Okay, we have a lot of these principles in our constitution. I'll spare you the American politics lecture. Okay, but look, the punishment must fit the crime, and it actually also is a safeguard. It allowed the nations to put an end to personal and family blood feuds. Do you get how this happens? Okay, it puts justice in the public institutional courts instead of with the hurt, grieving, and often enraged individuals who have been hurt and their families, maybe of these individuals. So the feuding does not continue. But here's what's interesting. The religious and scholars and teachers of the first century Israel were taking this command from the Old Testament that was meant for the political state of Israel, and they were making it a mandate for personal relationships at that time. You can imagine how that went. Okay, so it's, it was sort of like they would take these people aside and they'd say, hey, hey, don't take that dispute to the Roman authorities. Take matters in your own hands. Just do what you think is right. So, lots of pirates again. Okay, so in verse 39, Jesus tells his followers that our, power, our personal relationships as individuals to other individuals, that's not the place for retaliation. That's not the place for rights and justice. That's the place for mercy. And here's how he says it. Don't resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Or don't hit back at all. That's another way of saying that. Okay? Jesus is pushing against this idea of personal resistance. To resist someone in that day usually meant that word choice, usually meant a legal resistance, like suing them in court, or a political resistance, like taking up weapons in rebellion. Okay? This is a category mistake. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is justice. That justice is meant to, is not meant, excuse me, to cheer on incredibly personal revenge or retaliation. Do you get that? That's not what it's meant for. It's meant for public institutional authorities like the government and the courts. And this doesn't mean that we don't actually advocate for a more just justice system. We do. That's our calling even within these verses. Okay? But it does mean that Jesus is against us with our, distort, our distorted and very hurt reasoning, pretending to personally execute justice vigilante style. Okay? Scholar John Stott puts it pretty well. Jesus was prohibiting the, what, excuse me, Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather Jesus was forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. Okay, I'll say it again. Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, he was prohibiting or forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. Okay? 
So 2,000 years later, the category of mistake that we have is oftentimes the opposite. And I illustrated that with a story earlier, okay? Like my upper school head, Bill, at the time, many of us take Jesus' command for individual personal mercy, and we apply it to institutional authority. We want administrations and governments and law courts to extend a personal kind of mercy that often comes at the expense of justice, okay? So, I mean, we see this in Romans chapter 13, the letter of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and so on. I have a lot of time and space for that. Not today, okay? But what righteously frustrated me at the time when I was teaching was that Bill made his personal forgiveness of the student apply to school discipline, which satisfied mercy but not justice requirement. Does that make sense? Are we all tracking with this idea? It's really complicated. I'm trying to nuance it. This personal experience makes me appreciate all the more the statement that recently came out, there's an interview that she had after the statement, but the sexual abuse victim, Rachel Denhollander, she was a former Olympic gymnast, okay, she commented about how well-meaning Christians like me often struggle to hold both mercy and justice together. Okay, this is what she says. I found it very interesting, to be honest, that every single Christian publication or speaker that has mentioned my court statement has only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. Very few, if any of them, have recognized what else came with that statement, which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. Both of those are biblical concepts. Both of those represent Christ. We do not do well when we focus only on one of them. Okay? Does everyone kind of get that point? I think this is really well illustrated by John Stott again. He has this idea like, he sort of starts to try to think about hypothetically what this would look like. And if a robber came in and invaded his home, he was sort of saying, maybe I would feed and give the robber something to drink personally, but I'd also call the police. Do you see that tension? That's sort of what Jesus is calling us to. Okay. So while some of you might think these big picture you know, ideas, distinctions are interesting, most of us, maybe aside from the honor council members here, maybe... This time of year, they're probably not here. But anyway, they don't, we don't regularly experience harm in public, institutional, justice kind of ways, typically, okay? Um, and so this is why Jesus' examples in verses 39 through 42 are small picture. They're about personal. They're about, the, about mercy, okay? So, for instance, look at verse 39 with me. It's about what we do when we get insulted. If you see that uh, most people are right-handed. They're not left-handed or literally gauche, okay? They slap people, okay, if they're right-handed, they, will, they would not slap people on the right cheek normally, right? If you think about the math, okay? Think about the opposite side. They would have to slap someone on the right cheek would have to be backhanded, okay? Is everyone doing this geometry with me? I'm confused. My spatial intelligence is very low, but that's my guess, okay? That's my understanding, so they were, they were not slapping in this instance. You don't slap with a backhand for maximum physical damage. Okay? You slap for insult, for disrespect, and for dishonor. In fact, in the ancient world, the backhanded slap was reserved for social inferiors. At that time and place, social inferiors were people like small children and slaves and even women, sadly. So in our time, though, a backhanded slap might not necessarily being hit physically, it might be an arrogant subtweet, okay? Or it might mean social media comments back and forth, like a mean one, mean exchange. 
or an unfair rumor that circulates about you, or even a flagrant intramural foul. Okay? Someone tripped you and you couldn't handle it. Okay, so Jesus advises us not to foul back, not to quit the game, but to turn to him the other cheek, okay, to that person that tripped you, the other cheek. That is, you stand there, you take it, and then you even move toward your offender or my offender. And you say something like, hit me again if you like, but this time hit me on the other cheek. That is as an equal, not an inferior. Okay, that's actually what that means. It's really fascinating. Okay, or rather, here's what I would say in the modern way of saying it. I mean, you could have that great speech. That'd be awesome. On the intramural basketball court, I'd love that. Uh, but we could say, I would say something like, hey, can we grab a meal or coffee and talk about what just happened? Okay, here's where it hurts. Here's how it hurts. But help me understand where it came from. What did I do? What did I do wrong? Where are you with all of this? Even possibly, are you doing okay? Do you see the difference of posture there? Okay. So then in verse 40, Jesus continues moving to another little scene. And he tells us not only let someone take the shirt off your back, but also gift wrap the coat off your back and make a present of that too. That's what he's saying. Okay. In ancient Israel, the tunic and especially the cloak was as close as they came to an, an unalienable right. Okay? Your cloak, especially if you're a poor person, was not just an outer garment. It was basically the only garment you had to cover yourself. It was like bedding. It was mattress. It was pillow all wrapped up in one. So taking that was a big deal. It was like taking your person. And this means to give up a tunic, let alone a cloak, was a choice not to assert your rights. Okay? So at Davidson, this might look like telling yourself, sure, I have the right to stay up late with the lights on when my roommate's trying to go to sleep. Okay. Yes, I have the right to have students come and stay in my room or our common room every weekend, all these friends that are coming over. Okay. But what would it look like for me to pack up my bag and go to the library instead? What would it look like for me to disappoint a high school friend's travel schedule and for the sake of a grumpy roommate? Do you understand that parallel? That would be what it means to give up your rights as a roommate. Okay. So finally, verses 41 through 42, Jesus is telling us to do what's absolutely not expected of us, absolutely not expected of our personal freedom. So to not just carry the Roman soldier's equipment one mile as required, but two miles. To resist the twitch muscle instinct to protect or to hoard our personal possessions and actually give them away generously. That's crazy. Okay? So when a professor or a coach schedules something mandatory at night, your free time, okay, what would it look like to go to the lecture or the practice assuming it actually might be worth the extra time? That's what Jesus is pushing here. You see how, like, now we're just getting provocative here. You were just like, oh, carrying Roman equipment, whatever. Oh, my free time, right? Okay? Or what would it look like to buy someone dinner who you know will never pay you back? And even if they say, I got it next time, we'll never pick up the check the next time. Okay? Um, Because really, after all, it's likely well above your metaphysical pay level well outside your metaphysical lane of traffic to change a moocher into a sharer, 
okay? That's very hard to change someone at that level. It's very hard to make someone who's a little stingy, a little less stingy with their, with their money. Does that make sense? Okay, what does that have to do with anything? The point of all of this that Jesus is driving at in verses 39 through 42 is exactly that. Changing others and changing myself is well above my metaphysical pay level. Okay? All these different scenarios done over time, done relentlessly over and over again are impossible. Okay? We just can't on our own show that kind of relentless mercy day in and day out. Okay? The real you and the real me is also the real person that's tired sometimes and hangry and silently stressed out about your schedule, even right now. Okay? And me too. So, this is why, in the words of Tom Wright, Jesus' teaching isn't just good advice. It's good news. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just about us. It's about Jesus himself. This was the blueprint for his own life. Right? He asks nothing of his followers that he hasn't faced himself. Think about it. Jesus' life and death demonstrated in exquisite detail just what personal mercy looks like. He was insulted. Even on his deathbed on the cross, they mocked him, calling him the king of the Jews. Okay? He was stripped naked. His tunic and his cloak were gambled for by a bunch of Roman soldiers. He was forced to carry his own cross beyond his physical limits, right? And finally, whenever someone begged Jesus, even on the cross, for a little more of his time, a little more of his healing, a little more of his salvation, he never, ever, ever refused. But all these acts of mercy leading up to his crucifixion were merely previews for the screening, the movie version of the ultimate act of mercy. By his act of self-sacrifice, Jesus comes towards us even when we backhand slap him in our hearts. Okay? He carries our burdens the extra mile. He clothes us with his relationship with God, his status before the living God. He gives us that tunic and that cloak at his own expense. Okay? And in our neediness, in our inability, in our unwillingness to show mercy, Jesus gives us his mercy. And he gives us his mercy, not just a good demonstration. He gives us his own desires for mercy, to be merciful, and his own ability to be merciful, to resist retaliation. He does it spiritually through giving us his very spirit, by writing his own laws on our hearts. Look, but we need Jesus for more than even passive resistance, okay? We, so much of our lives is trying not to do wrong, okay? Whether it's Christian or not, fretting over missteps, right? How far is too far? How close is too close? Okay, this is our questions that we're always asking. But in verses 43 through 48, Jesus is calling us to an active obedience. He's saying, you've got to go out there and you've got to love those who hurt us on purpose, We've got to actually love those who hurt us more than once. Okay? He's calling us deeper from not giving offenders what they deserve, mercy, to giving your offender what he or she definitely does not deserve. That's grace. Okay? That is, in verse 44, what Jesus calls love. Okay? And so we've arrived at point two, our last point. 
our time together. The grace of loving your enemies, okay? Like verses 38 through 42, Jesus puts this deeper call in the context of the viral videos of the time. Okay, I want you to think about all the religious TED Talks and podcasts in the first century Israel were all saying the same thing. This is what was the current. This is the Christian subculture, the Jewish subculture. Okay? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Everyone's saying the same advice. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Okay? And that's what is classically called a half-truth. Okay? <laughs> Look at this. He quotes half of the verse. These, this, excuse me, this popular saying quotes half of the verse. Half of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Okay? But the other half, that is like the whole hate your enemies part, never mention the Old Testament at all. Okay? So yes, we're commanded to love our neighbors, but we're never commanded to hate our enemies. So Jesus is setting the record straight in an unprecedented way. He's saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. I can't even tell you how historically unprecedented this is. Okay, like you do all the research. You go to the Talmud, which is the commentary for the Jewish people at the time. They had no categories for this. The closest it came was patience with your enemies. Totally different. Okay? Then you go to the ancient Greek ethics and philosophers, Isocrates or Aristotle. They had no concept of love. They had no category of friendship that covered your personal enemies. Okay? Really, Jesus' call to love our enemies is this brand new thing, and it's defining, it's redefining, maybe forever defining what verse 48 calls perfection. So I I want you to really hear this because I think it's important. We misunderstand perfection and perfectionism all the time. Okay? This isn't avoiding all errors or even doing your personal best. That's not what perfection means. Okay? The word perfect in the Greek and by this context means full maturity or wholeness, just like God's wholeness. Okay? It's about the excellence of love more than the absence of mistakes. Perfectionism is about the excellence of love more than the absence of mistakes. Okay? But what makes loving enemies so excellent? Okay? I think we have to start with the enemies part of the equation. Can we start there? Okay. Think of who exactly your enemies are, and that may well be the hardest thing you've done all night. Okay? Is there someone who hurts you on purpose, perhaps even more than once? Someone you can't stand? You feel justified being angry at? So there's someone you just don't like? Someone you just don't think you're like at all? The person who comes to mind at this moment, if you went there, is probably what the Bible calls your enemy. Okay? That person could be someone close to you, friend, a family member, someone in your hall, someone in your apartment, someone in your athletic team. They could feel like an, and they could just feel like an enemy for a season not necessarily year-round. Or they could feel like an enemy year-round. You know, sun or, rain or shine, 365, okay? If you can't think of anyone right now, I'm sadly extremely confident that in your life you will make an enemy. Sorry, that sucks. That's bad news, but it's true, okay? And it, here's what might happen. It might be a brand-new relationship. Someone comes to your life and wrongs you really, really wrong, really, really raw, or it might be an old relationship that you start to see more honestly. So if you can think of someone, if you can think of someone distinct, maybe someone who was abusive, I just want to say two things really fast. 
First, there are people in this room, we would love to hear your story. We would love to hold your pain with you. So please talk to someone about it. The second thing I want to say is, um, I'm a, it's my professional educated guess that what was done to you was evil, wrong, and deserves just consequences. Okay? That relationship, though, also with that person requires a heck of a lot of wisdom and discernment to navigate, okay? So Jesus' advice in this passage, his notion of love, contrary to popular belief, does not dictate repeatedly putting your body or soul under the abuser's power, okay? That's not what he's saying. There's a whole body of literature in the Old Testament, the wisdom books, in particular books like the book of Proverbs, that tell us that we love enemies different than we love friends. That there's at least a difference in how we engage those people who are abusive than those those people who are kind and helpful and encouraging. Okay? Whole another sermon. I'm doing a lot of sub-sermons here. I could just spend the whole semester on that little love your enemies. Okay? But that prompts the question... Why does, what does loving this particular enemy that you've imagined in your heart and mind, future or present or past, what does that look like to love them well? And I think this is where I have to quote poet and theologian Frederick Buechner. Okay? He describes the tasks and his results. Well, it's been a long time in large group. Okay, so, okay, we just have to go there. All right, here it's a little bit lengthy, but he's, be- he's a beautiful writer, so we'll just deal with it. Okay? Just sit back, enjoy. Okay. Jesus says we are to love our enemies and pray for them, and he, meaning love not in an emotional sense, but in the sense of willing their good, which is the sense in which we love ourselves. It's a tall order even so. But when you see clearly who your enemies are, at least you see your enemies clearly too. You see the lines in their faces and the way that they walk when they're tired. You see who their husbands and wives are, maybe. You see they're vulnerable, where they're vulnerable. You see where they're scared. Seeing what's hateful about them, you may catch a glimpse also of where that hatefulness comes from. (laughs) Seeing the hurt they cause you, you may also see the hurt that they cause themselves. You're still light years away from loving them, to be sure, but at least you see how they're human even as you're human. And that is at least a step in the right direction. It's possible that you may even get to where you can pray for them a little, if only that God forgive them, because you yourself can't forgive them. But any prayer for them is a major breakthrough. In the long run, it may be easier to love the ones we look in the eye and hate, the enemies, than the ones whom, because we're as afraid of ourselves as we're afraid of them, those people we choose not to look at at all are the hardest to love. Okay? So profound. Another sermon. Okay? So... Here's Beekner's exercise of courage and seeing leads me not just to focus on my enemy, but also helps me to focus on myself, right? See how I turned it? And it helps me to focus on myself and God and what this idea of love means. See, according to verse 45, this love, agapao, related to agape in the Greek, is a special kind of divine love. Okay? Look at verse 45 with me. It's not a love that's controlled by circumstances. It's not a love that's controlled by the object of love. This is so interesting. It's not a love that's controlled by the person's goodness or loveliness. 
It's not a love that's conditioned upon being loved first or being loved in return. It's a love that is the Father God's love that's acted out perfectly in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 5, chapter 5, Romans, Romans, the letter of Romans, chapter 5, okay? Jesus says, look, he loved me when I was still weak. He died for me when I was ungodly, right? He showed his love not just while I, when I insulted him and harmed him as a sinner, but also Jesus reconciled people like you and people like me to God while we were enemies, Okay? Do you know what Jesus does to his enemies? What's his number one strategy, his plan A? He dies for them. That's what he does. Well, sorry, first he prays forgiveness for them. Like he did when he was nailed with iron spikes in his hands and his feet on the cross. And then when he was finally stretched out and suffocated to death on two crisscrossed splintery planks of wood, then he died for his enemies. For people like me. The people who are all, he did this all to like people who are tired, right? Vulnerable, scared, sometimes hateful. Humans like me and for what we're after. He gave us what we're after, love, right? His love, God's love, not based on my appearance, not based, not conditioned on our performance, but acted out perfectly for his children so that we might be perfect. That is not that we'll never make a mistake ever again but that will be wholly accepted, unstoppably growing up into maturity so that we bear a family resemblance, so that we look more and more like our spiritual dad. That's what perfection looks like. Okay, we're about that time. I'm going to do an illustration. Uh, I know some of you are like, I, you got to quit, but I can't help it. With your permission, I'm going to tie all this stuff together with another story. Okay? about someone suffering sleepless nights who's feeling out this idea of justice and mercy and, and grace. I'm gonna, I want to ask the question, what does this honest Christian maturity look like in this 21st century in America? Can I ask that question? Can we, can we go there? Too bad. Okay. Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Deadholander, as mentioned, I quoted her earlier, she's a former elite gymnast, recently made an impact statement in the case against Dr. Larry Nasser, who is the Olympic doctor who sexually abused her repeatedly from the age of 15, okay? So I'm sorry, this is pretty intense. I'll try not to do too many details, but she starts to think about what the 15-year-old girl that happened to her, and now she starts to think about the way it's impacted her life as a young woman. And Rachel Denholder begins her speech to the court, to the judge in particular about the sentencing, and then kind of pivoting back and forth between the defendant, Larry Nasser, her abuser, okay? She asks this question, how much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? And she asks that question to highlight the justice issue here, to protect innocent girls from future abuse and to punish Nasser for his past crimes. But in the very heart of making this incredibly, very, very passionate case for the judge to give Nasser the maximum allowed penalty, the most years he can possibly get, Listen to what Denholder said to her abuser. She pivots in the middle of her speech and starts talking to this guy, Larry, directly. The person that did things he should never have done to her. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. 
It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you throw it into the lake than for you to make one child stumble, you have damaged hundreds. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. That's an amazing statement. Do you see what she did there? In the face of her former abuser, Rachel Denhollander loved him with the gospel and her personal forgiveness. While at the same time, she mercifully pitied him and argued for justice to be done. That is a very, very different definition and an extremely good reminder of what perfection truly is. Okay? Especially right now in the very teeth of a very difficult academic set of reminders. Okay? Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. As hard as it is to talk about. Um, it's hard. Um, I feel like the whole sermon should have a trigger alert. Um, but I just think that it's difficult to jump into what it feels like to be hurt. None of us want to go there. But I pray that as we open the wound to re-examine it, that you would be there with us, that by your stripes we'd be healed, that you'd meet us in the midst of our pain and our suffering, and help us to give us love, a love that is truly supernatural, a love that is above and beyond our abilities and our likes and dislikes. And I pray that you would help us uh, not to replace one kind of academic or athletic excellence with some sort of moralistic perfection, but that you would help us to remember why we're put on this planet. To go out and to stumble towards other people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.